0: everyone for coming. I mean, um, this is basically, this is the first time I've done this, this is going to be very informal. Um, I'm kind of winging it, I'm letting everybody know that, you know, full disclaimer, I'm not a massive professional at this, you know, I know what I know. And I think I know what I know, well, and I've done enough of these deals that I feel like I could pass, you know, what I've learned on to everyone um i I don't recommend anyone just kind of jump into these larger projects without you know doing due diligence on like you know what it really takes to you know financially and what you should know before you talk to these sellers and get involved with it um so first um what how i'm gonna do this i'm gonna go through some slides we're gonna go through sections then after each section i'll ask if you have a question Put your question into the chat and I will go through them section by section. And then, you know, we'll take it from there, see how it goes, see how far we get. Um, I'm going to start sharing my screen. Still getting some people in here. All right, I'm going to start sharing my screen. Let me know that you can see my screen. Yes, sir, we can see it. You got it, awesome, cool. And then you can still see me, right? Cool. All right. All right, so um, Stacked Investing, just to let everybody know, because a lot of people ask me what that is. Basically, it's, it's just gonna you know, put a bunch of courses together. I've done the one on the uh, burst strategy, and then this is the second one. And I feel like that hopefully you get a lot of value out of it. Um, if you are looking for, you know, a lot of people ask me where you find these properties. Um, I'm gonna start by saying I use PropStream. And I also, if you use my, if you want my code, I can get you a code to um, get you a discounted rate per month and get you a trial. So um, I will get you that code. I I have it on a link somewhere. I forgot to bring it. No big deal. But guys, let's let's just get into it. Um, Basically, I want to explain what land development is because a lot of people get confused. And I'm going to be looking back and forth. I've got friends back here too. So look, you have a lot of people that ask for the developer, the builder, this and then the other. Um, the developer is the person who takes raw land. When I say raw land, it's, it's not fully entitled. It's not, it doesn't, it's not up to its highest and best use. So basically that person is going to take the time and the resources to bring it to highest and best values, like flipping a house. You take a raw piece of land and you make it into what it needs to be. Um, And that's basically what all it really is and making it, you know, having the right team and going through codes and making sure that, you know, you can do the deal. So before you do this, I ask yourself, and this is something that I've battled with to this day and being an agent and having a lot of listings on the side helps, but a lot of developers, I mean, they may be really excited to do maybe four to five deals a year. A lot of times they, they could take six months to a year you know you can spend upwards of you know 100 150 50 to 150 grand on earnest deposits and due diligence and whatever else you need to do um and it, it really takes you have to have a certain amount of patience so like you got to think about that when you're building your team you know you have you have to have your acquisitions you have to have your um your person who is going to take it through the planning process and you know a lot of those people are usually not the same person. Your acquisition person is not your analytical person. You know, your acquisition person is gonna help your disposition, finding your end buyers and getting it through, finding private money and lending and stuff like that. So pretty simple there. Um, I like to start by your exit strategies. I wanna go through each of these, right? So let's just pretend for a second, we have a piece of land, right? You're gonna have this piece of dirt for like a year, six months to a year it's going the value of it's going to change within that amount of time, depending on where, what information you learn or what you add to it, or, you know, the aggressiveness of these end buyers. So, you know, you, you're always going to have to make sure you have more than one way to take it down, whether it's, you know, holding it for someone else. Let's just say, wholesaling, um, a real easy way to wholesale is like, if you have a two, four build lot or whatever, you know, I'm going to get it under contract. I'm going to wholesale to Andrew for a fee. He's going to do his due diligence and we're done. It's, it's pretty easy. You know, it's pretty straightforward. You know, you're not going to take a lot of time. But if you're going to wholesale something like this, that is like, you know, 50 units and, you know, you have to come up with, you know, anywhere between one and $5 million to be able to take it down before your end buyer is able to, you know, is able to take down the property. So that's kind of like one way to do it. Um, a lot of times that wholesale will become a JV. You know, a lot of times it'll take a lot of, a lot of people together to pool money together or pool resources to be able to take it down. Um, you can find a deal and you can hold it for appreciation. You know, a lot of times, so you may find something that may be favorably zoned already. You could hold on to it, let it appreciate, you know, maybe put it on the market for ridiculous, ridiculous price and see if somebody bites, right? Um, you could develop the land yourself, which is what we're doing, we're developing them, and then we're selling the end product. Either you could sell them per pad, depending on, if you're in a rural area, yeah, you could probably sell per pads. investors. Infill, most likely you're going to sell the whole project, right? Um, you could, it says sell, land, and procure a listing agreement. A lot of times, um, if I have a piece of land, and I have two buyers, and one of them, they're ident- identical terms. Know, identical price, I'm gonna choose the one that is gonna give me the backend listings, more or less. And how do I have the right to do that? Well, I'm not, this isn't a listing. I have the interest, this is my contract, so I can do whatever I want with it. Um, an assignment or double close, that's the tricky one. And that's something you're just gonna to have to always plan on doing. Um, double close, meaning like, you know, you're gonna to have to find the funds to take it down because, you know, you have a year for a contract, right? So I'm doing my due diligence for a year to bring the highest and best value. Andrew comes in and he still needs six to seven months of due diligence for whatever the building requirements are that his company or whatever takes to him. So you may have to find the funds to actually purchase the property and be able to hold it for, you know, two, three, four, five, six months to a year or more until that end buyer, is able to close, or and in that scenario, you have to be okay with being able to just keep it. Like, if that buyer doesn't go through, are you in a position where you're able to keep the property, find another buyer, or list it and sell it? So, I'm gonna stop there and see if anyone has any questions about that. I'm gonna go to the chat. People hear me, that's awesome. Hi, everyone. Baby question What's a JV? Okay, a JV is a joint venture. Okay, so. Um, I have a property, and I'm gonna bring Andrew. I know I keep using because I can see. I can bring Andrew in, right? Well, I mean, let's. I've got the property. I've I've already spent a bunch of money on due diligence, and I already know where it's going. And he may be bringing the money. Well, I mean, so or he's gonna maybe help me do something. Then we write up a joint venture agreement that would, you know, explain the terms of our our relationship together on what we're gonna do, what we're bringing to the table. You know, it's almost like a very um watered down version of like a general partnership or something like that it's basically who does what now a lot of that's important because a lot of your large spec builders like Ryan Holmes and stuff like that they will only do everything on a JV they'll JV with the owner you know maybe the owner holds a piece of land and they decide on a valuation but they don't get paid until later so that's if you can JV with the owners you can JV with developers developers and builders are huge. They're usually your biggest JV because maybe their partner is going to develop it, but they're already lined up to build it, but they're only staying, you know, maybe their builder's not going to have to pay an additional fee to get the property because they're working together, or maybe there's a, a different split. Does that make sense? All right. If you could elaborate on a JV, there you go, with an actual land owner. I mean, just so you basically, I mean, I have a piece of land and this person, you know, I don't want to have to pay for it right now. I want to be able to see it through, but that person may want a million dollars just to say, well, maybe they get paid later or through payments or seller financing terms or anything like that. Um, It could be whatever you make it, just like any type of subject to or anything like it's, It's what you make it. Um, Double close. Okay, this is important. There's something you need to know in here. So a double close could some, usually you hear double close, it's, closes on the same day, meaning I'm going to take, t- I'm, I'm the seller, I'm going to sell it to somebody, but I am all, I'm going to close on it and fund it. And the same day that person is also going to fund it. And I keep the difference. So that's, you know, if you're going to close the same day, it's considered transactional funding, usually for a fee, you get your full purchase price for 24 hours. And then that would give the other person. So this way you can't do a dry fund and close. You can't just close a deal without the funds and then sell. It. So I'm here doing a double close. A lot of times we'll hold it for a week or a month or even longer. So one person will close on the property, but usually the a lot of times the end buyer now, you know, they're pulling four or 5 million just to take down the acquisition. So they may have uh, bank financing or something involved with that. If that's the case, you need to know that up front because you can't just double close the same day or two days. You have to have the first property convey title and get recorded. And then the other, the bank will then be able to lend on it, but it has to go through title. So a lot of times, you know, if they're telling you they can double close in the same day, you know, it's usually more involved than I would definitely check on that because it's it's usually, it's not very common unless you're using the same people a lot. So you're going to want to hold, you know, you're going to want to have to hold it. Okay, question. When your exit is number five, sell to procure landless, sell the land for lists. You usually make a profit on the front end as well by selling higher than your contractor price. It's just this, look, man, Chris, the easy answer to this is whatever you negotiate. Like, what is the, what is, how much value do you have in the property? How much you know, value are you bringing to the table? What have you already done? Have you put money in? I mean, that is 100% negotiable. So if nobody has any questions on that, I'm going to move away from this. Oh, let me move this out of the way. I think I missed a part. Ah, due diligence, huge. Everybody's always asking about this. So you have to think of two, do your due diligence in twofold. Number one, what is your timeframes that you need to make the deal work, to make it go through planning, to make you get sure you get your surveys and stuff on time, and then at the same time you have to be thinking ahead what do I think my end buyer requirements are? What, under, what have they been asking for when they need to get under contract? Because you're going to have to work some of that in also. You know, any underwriting requirements, you know, hold times or, you know, um, a lot of sometimes along construction documents or grading permit contingencies and stuff like that. Like, what do they really need? And that all that together determines, you know, what you're going to need for as much time as you need. So, you know, looking on the planning agenda schedules for wherever you're at to see like, you know, when is my application deadline? What do I have to do before there? Where's all my readings line up from that deadline and, and you know, have to make your closing accordingly and making sure hopefully the seller will be able to want to work with those terms. Because, I mean, it's usually more than a year sometimes that we're holding these properties. You know, we're putting these through, you know. So sometimes you have to see what their needs are as a seller. And, you know, do you get it at a discount where maybe you feel good about closing on it. I never recommend that. I would never close on anything before a rezoning is completed. You know, um, you guys can put your questions about due diligence in the chat. And how far and quickly does the end buyer need to go construction docs is huge. Um, You want to make sure you have to talk your, how your survey times, like when you get your survey back, you know, do you need a critical lot plan? Do you need to get Um, what exactly do you need to get figured out? Is there water involved streams, you know, um, are there any easements or anything on the surveys involved? Let me go ahead and I'm going to show you guys, I'm going to share my screen and I'm going to show you an example of a survey that would give, would tell me why I would not want to close home. So I'm going to go here. So here's the subject property. It's a listing I have, right? And I'm looking right here. Um, and they're, they're zoned, so I'm going to give this short story. They're zoned R6, which is cool that you can do two, you know, 54 by 490, you got plenty of square footage. So, you know, coming out of the gate, it's like, I saw this on the market. I'm going to make a quick, you know, quick full price offer based on that. But um, I'm going to have a survey and then I'm going to see this, okay? So right here is part of this right here where it is. I already had it. Right here is the, where the collector street is. They're adding it. They have a proposed road. So you're not going to see that on a lot of things. You will see it on GIS. If I can just, here it is right here. So you, when you're pulling up your different layers on GIS, which this is what you want to do, you want to make sure you go to your parcel viewer and compare it to CRS. And then you're going to want to flip through the, uh, the tabs. So one of them is like your your layers of just like, you know, your parcel IDs, SP, this is the zoning. Here's your neighborhood policy, the T4M, PCA2, um, adopted CCM. Well, so right here, this kind of shows you if there's any PUDs. Like maybe a lot of times we'll have an old PUD that sits in there, you know, this is all zone R6 right here is looks like this is a stream. When you see this right here. um, Of course, you have your FEMA flood maps. And here's the big one, major and collector street plan. There's a lot of reasons for that. First of all, you want to see if you're on a collector street, because if you have, you know, two, two front footages on two different streets, your you can do adaptive residential if your major, your majority of your frontage is on your major collector street. So this will show right here that we're on a collector street by this line on White's Creek Pike. So it looks like they have a road going through here that they're proposing. So then it's like, well, who's responsible for this? You know, do I, if I rezone, am I responsible? By right, do I have to do anything? So that's, a, you know, you're gonna have to go to your public works department and try to figure that out. So then that brings us to the survey. Right here, it has um, a dedicated easement for some drainage, because why? Look at the slopes. This is why it's important to get it, either walk the property, get a topo. So right here, they have a drainage easement because it looks like it must've been coming through here, right? And then right here, I don't know if you can see it. It has a, um, this is a, a Piedmont gas easement. So that's going to limit your buildability on this right here as a, just a straight up six build. You know, you're going to probably have to, you know, um, figure out the setbacks from the easement here, the setbacks from easement here. And I take that back. This is actually that stream. So then you have to look there and be like, okay, is this a stream or a wet weather conveyance? Cause if it's a stream, then you're, Going to be a lot more um, costly to have to build around that stream than just having a wet weather conveyance, which has a simple, you know, I think it's a twenty foot setback or something like that. So that's an example of why you want to make sure that in your due diligence you're getting your survey. And this is, you know, basic due diligence that anybody can do, you know, um, to be able to, you know, look at these parcels. You know, a lot of times, so a key thing here is you see this CO right here. Um, that's conservation overlay. That means either the slopes or there's some reason why you just cannot build in that area. So it's like, you know, like this one right here looks great. If I were to, you know, it's just a st- pretty straightforward lot, but look at this proposed road that goes through there. You know, they're going to want to figure out what's going on there. Then I see like a little easement, looks like something at one point looks like maybe coming off of Trinity. Maybe there's a house back there at one time. You know, is that recorded? Or is that, you know, just somebody's easement that somebody used by just being there for, you know, using it every day for a long amount of time. I'm going to look in the chat for some questions. If I can find the chat. What is the best way to learn the GIS system and the various layers that go with it? Well, I mean, here's all the layers, they're, they're right here. Um, and a lot of them just has to do with, you know, talking to codes to double check or your, sur- your surveyor is, and a civil engineer is your best friend on any of this type of stuff. You know, like I'm not the expert, I can tell you what I've heard and no one can see here, but you know, at the end of the day, you're gonna wanna talk to your civil engineers and your surveyors, um, your biggest thing is, and I don't know if I noticed, is like, you know, your neighborhood policy right here is T4, so you're gonna to have to go to, um, I think they changed it recently and it's, I wanna say it's understanding the zoning code. So here's kind of where you would wanna to go to just, you know, kind of see what the zoning is. Like look in the corner here what, what that screen is all this right here, ownership history, property history. Oh, I need to put that parcel up. ownership, like here's the parcel ID, you know, you want to, you know, a lot of times CRS, for instance, they never get subdivides, right? You know, so you want to make sure that your parcel ID matches what you're doing is that it's only the same parcel. Um, You kind of want to flip through. Sometimes you can get some good information if if you pull up the deed. Um, That's another thing for due diligence as huge as your title work. You know, just because you get clear title from your title company doesn't mean that you have good title for everything that you want to do. Um, it just means that your title's clear. So you wanna look through, you ask for the abstract and you wanna search through and find any old recorded easements, deed restrictions, any old PUDs or like whatever um, you need to do. And another thing you wanna do is go to, well, let's go property history. Um, There's is zoning history. So you see this effective date, the 1974, that's important. <clears throat> Especially when you're looking at something like this that seems to be just non-conforming, so I have have to refer to my notes. And basically, if it's not, um, if if the lot was created by deed before 1964, it's a legal lot. After that, it's not. So for for example, a good example is this property right here. Um, What is the address? Yes, was, I believe it was, yeah, this little one right here, the 610 Creative Way. I mean, if you look at the parcel details, right, you've got 10,000 square feet, right? So this is awesome. I mean, I can, that sounds like an R10 rezone, right? R10 two, or maybe a subdivide. Or, so when you go, when we went back, we noticed that where. this was all replatted back in 1997 so look at it I mean you, you got to kind of tell that like look at this street right here I mean nothing is correctly subdivided or conformed so basically you weren't able they since it's done on an old plat because back in the day they can just subdivide a corner and build a house you know now you can't do that so you have to make sure that it's done on an original plat. So, you know, infill is a lot easier because it's, you know, it's the lot and the block, you know, it's basically just chopped up. But like anytime you're outside of like any, any type of interesting area, you're going to get stuff like this. That's just, they're all different. So you have to figure out there was an old plat because the city made a plat when they built the city. So you got to kind of figure out what that is. And then that just brings you to the, okay, so what do we do now? You know, and nine times out of 10, what you're going to have to do is do an SP, you know, and then you're going to have to go through planning and all that fun stuff. Can you get grandfather into tearing down a building in a conservation overlay if a home already exists in the CO? Absolutely not. No, you cannot. Any more questions on due diligence? Let me make sure I um, I'm stop sharing here, hit my slides. All right. So we talked about how, how much due diligence you need. And a lot of it is just very dependent on everybody's circumstances and what you're going to do with the property underwriting requirements. is kind of like a guess, you know, a lot of these larger, when they're using hedge funds and they're spending five, $10 million, they're all going to have, and you want to be able to, I mean, you have to treat these people like a buyer. It's like, okay, where are you getting your money? I need to talk to those people and you make sure that they have milestones in their due diligence where you know maybe they put 50k down and we get to third reading and they have to put another hundred down or another 50 down so you want to make sure that whatever these deposits are you need to make sure that it could you know be worth your time and effort if they back out and you want to make it hurt because they're not going to risk 200 grand if they think their is not going to go through you know what i'm saying so you know 10k 5k 20k i mean if i'm the seller you know i will not take that but if i'm the buyer i want that of course but like you know you have to make it where it's, it's going to hurt if they do not come through for closing let's see what's left on here we've got due diligence okay so part of due diligence we already kind of talked a little bit about what's the highest and best use of the property you know a lot of that determines your council district and your location and what else is going on in the neighborhood um what does the community want to see this is big too so Like, I mean, if you're going outside of Metro, you know, you go to rural areas, you want to meet the city planners. You want to find out who they are, you know, find out what that city needs, what they already have and what type of infrastructure they have. That's huge because like, for instance, there's cities that may not have a sewer that's suitable for a property. You know, you may, you know, a lot of times you'll have to do a sewer main extension, or you'll have to upgrade the pipe to meet your density. You know, if you if you turned down one house to build fifty, you know you're going to have to put an infrastructure. We've had to tear up 1,000, 2,000 feet of road to tear it up, dig them in, put our sewer in, put lift stations. Like you have to figure out, that, figure that out. You know, um, also with like a, doing a fire test. Like if you have a lot of slopes, you know you're going to do a flow test, but you may not be able to get your water up to the maybe the top of the highest peak. So what are they going to require? you going to have to put devices in the houses to be able to shoot the water up lift stations, which would limit your density if you're going to have to start adding lift stations. So it's like, you know, trying to figure out what that is. Um, and a big question is who are the major players in the area, you know, poking around to see who's bought stuff that is similar to yours in the last couple of years or two, three years, who's around it. I mean, you know, we we do a lot on Trinity. So like we know everybody who's bought or buying on Trinity and, all the commercial agents that have bought and sold on there. So we know who we got to try to determine who your end buyer is and like what their requirements are. Um, what does the city area have planned for the area? Well, you're gonna to wanna to look up the, uh, oh, I'm losing the, like the city, oh, let me, let me think. it was comprehensive plan of your city. You know because a lot of times you are going to look at your policies you know and where it's located will give you either more or less density depending on what the city has already planned um which legislative legislations involved more or less like going through your sp you know what are the requirements to add density um talking to your surveyor and your civil engineer and the city is going to get you the answer to those questions that's different everywhere Um, you also want to make sure you're looking for any old HOAs, you know, a lot of times they'll have a deed restriction or an HOA and a PUD. And a lot of times you'll have to, you know, delete the PUD to be able and do a rezone at the same time to take the PUD away, to add whatever you're going to do to it, if they'll allow that, you know, and in that case, if you're doing it again, you know, um, a lot of times you're going to have to create the HOA for these places, you know, finding a property manager, at least, you know, for the, until they're fully taken over by ownership, you know, while maybe it's a two-year plan while you're selling off the units, you're going to have an HOA in place to regulate all of that before all the owners are in there. And then sometimes the HOA will change hands to maybe somebody, you know, a company or a different company or something. So, and you're going to have to, you know, determine like, what are those HOA rules, you know, um, on the front end, you know, how you're going to have to label out, like if there's any restrictions for short-term rentals or, you know, architectural design and stuff like that. If you're doing a straight rezone, it's gonna be a lot less than if you're doing an SP. Because if you're doing an SP, all your architectures, your site plans, your materials are all gonna have to be um, bid out. Questions on that? Virginia sold a new construction, bigger development area for the subdivision does not show the individual lots on GIS. It's in Springfield area. Is this just lag time? Why do the lots not show up? Um, I don't know anything about their GIS system, um, but that just goes back to looking for the original deeds. So you can always look in title work, find out where the, you know, find the title company to wear a clothes and ask them, you know, somebody has got a plat somewhere And that just goes to, you know, GIS, that's just like, it's good information, but it's not the information. You know, CRS, same thing. You're gonna have to, you know, look at deeds and find out where these closed and see what they have on record. Do you write and deposit milestones in the contract? 100% of the time, all of that needs to be. So let's talk about the contract for a second. It usually goes in two phases. Um, A lot of times they're gonna send an LOI, which is, you know, two pages and it's our, your basic terms, you know, your price, your rough due diligence, your earnest, your offerings, close days, stuff like that. And you're gonna negotiate that through, through that. So basically you're gonna kind of redline through an LOI. And then once those terms are agreed upon, which has the, which should always have the milestones in there, um, then you'll go ahead and you'll have an attorney draw up the contract. So a lot of times, These bigger companies will have in house attorneys that they have contracts for. Okay. So then you've already got your LOI negotiated, but you're going to get a a contract now. Well, now it's time to have your attorney or you go through that contract to see because you're going to have to redline, you're always going to have to redline more attorneys. You know, a lot of times it'd be something small, like, you know, they want to. We had a guy from another state where they wanted all of the laws and everything to go by their state. Well, no, we're going to do it by our state because you know, it's in our, the property's in our state and we're, that's what we were asked for. So you have to really look through there and make sure the wording of everything doesn't conflict with a term that you've already negotiated and agreed upon. Maybe they have, you know, you, okay, well, maybe they don't have architectural drawings as contingency, but maybe they, they do in the fine print. So you have to read through that. And sometimes, you know, your contract and due diligence time could take, you know, two, three, four weeks sometimes. So that's all I'm seeing there. So yes to that. So I'm gonna move on. Okay, so here's you know kind of like a list of like due diligence questions that you need to look for, right? Water, sewer, gas. I'm gonna go to I'm gonna go to one last. Number two is water. You know, get your water and sewer maps from the water company wherever this is located. Um, your gas. Your anytime your store your storm drains should be laid out. You want to be able to find out like what type, how big the pipe is for the sewer, you know, how old they are. You know, is there any requirements if you add density to change that? Um, Utility capacity, basically your pressure test back to the water, it goes back to the flow test. You know, um, just making sure you have enough water pressure to get up to your highest density peaks, your highest elevation, I mean. Um, Fire marshal requirements is big too. A lot of people skip these, but a lot of times on these, Two, even sometimes two builds will require, depending on where the fire station is, like we've actually had to add fire sprinklers in two single family homes because the fire station was a certain amount of miles away. So you wanna make sure that you talk to them um, to figure out their turnaround requirements because your, your normal parking requirements and your um, impervious are complete, completely different from the fire marshal. So, if they have the fire marshal's gonna have to sign off on it, then you're gonna have to get whatever requirements they have. And a lot of times it's different. So, back to the highest and best use again on your neighborhood policies. Variances is huge. Um, A lot of times you'll have, you know, if for instance you'll have a commercial lot next to a residential lot, well, in that case, they have um, a buffer, a landscape buffer of I think 20 or 30 feet. So a lot of times that'll kill your envelope. So you'll want to go get a variance to get that reduced to the normal setbacks, which could be, you know, five, 10 or whatever. Um, And and I'll show you where to find that here in a second. Um, So we've had variances where you move a lot line. Maybe they move. they added something and they moved the line and you want to move it back. You know, it's anything that shows a hardship. You have to show like a hardship of like a corner lot, for instance, you know sidewalk corner lots are worth less than a lot that's inside because you have to have sidewalks on both sides and those that sidewalks include curb and gutter and any stormwater treatment and stuff like that so maybe you want to get a variance to only have to be able to maybe pay the fee and lieu for the front or only do the front or something like that to show a hardship like you know the city has something in the way of me doing x you know it's a value add and you have to find them um Easements and encroachments are, are a normal big thing, you know, easements are, do, is there another property that needs access? Um, is is there multiple parcels that need access from the main road? Um, does the city have connectivity as one of their requirements? You know, do you need, if it's 80 units, do they want two entrances and how are you gonna get those? You know, um, encroachments, I mean, we there's houses that, you know, encroach, on lots all the time. There's some streets that are completely off. Um, a good example is Indiana, like they're all of them, every single house is off. So like surveyors have to like, sometimes, you know, if your lot is in the middle, that surveyors may have to, you know, you may have to pay for the whole street to be surveyed or try to, they're gonna go try to find an original plat and maybe use those markings to be able to identify where it's at, but that's, that's huge. You wanna make sure that there's no encroachments Um, Bylaws, overlays, or PUD, you know, your overlays are specific to your jurisdiction, you know, like sometimes people in Donaldson forget there's an airport overlay for, you know, building high, you know, your height requirements sometimes can be determined by your overlays. Um, And if it's a PUD, it has to be exactly what's already been negotiated on that PUD. And a lot of times these PUDs are like 20, 30 years old where they put a PUD together and they did nothing with it. And now it means nothing. So, now you have to go back and delete the PUD and, and, you know, either do a, you know, go back to the original zoning or rezone it to be something different. Um, slopes and trees and huge. And I, and I didn't put rock. So people underestimate rock a lot. So like, you know, if you have a site that has, if you look at the topo and there's a, it's very hilly or in a hilly area, you're going to want to have a soil test. You're going to want to drill some holes and hopefully determine like where you want to build these properties. Like, where is that rock? you know, and how much of it is there, and what is it gonna to cost to clear it? Because I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, those are all costs that have to go back to the seller, you know, and your due diligence to maybe renegotiate your price. Um, trees, like how much is gonna cost? If you got 20 acres, I mean, how much does an acre cost to get these trees taken down? I mean, you may be adding a couple hundred grand and just pulling your trees, you know, um, and slopes have a lot to do with that um in this you know talking about infrastructure you know your your clearing you know your soil tests you know your curbs your gutters your roads your sidewalks your streets your public roads what are those requirements the plumbing what is the cost to get all of the you know you got to come from the street and now you've got to hit 80 units or whatever many units of um you know for water taps and electric you know what is it going to cost anything that is like below foundation is, you know, is, a, is a cost to the land. You know, you have your land costs, you have your development costs, which is your infrastructure costs. Maybe raw land's worth 10K a pad and it costs 40K per pad to do your infrastructure. You know, so, and then you, maybe you need another 20K for stuff you don't even know. So what is this pad worth? If the pad's worth 100K, and you have it for 80K with no infrastructure, then obviously you're gonna have to renegotiate that or try to figure out another value add. Um, I don't, so I have wetlands down here just because, you know, I don't know tons about wetlands, but I do know, like in Davidson, your biggest things are like, obviously, your streams and your wet weather conveyance, stuff that goes through the lot, you know, making sure you have a, you know, a stream determinologist, a stream um, oh my God. hydrologist to be able to determine what, what that is, you know, it's like your surveyor, you have to have them go out and it takes them time and stuff like that um we kind of talked about access points and con- connectivity you want to see if it has any kind of views like obviously every market is different in florida it's water it's by the ocean you know those are your highest and best here is nashville downtown views you know and other areas it could be mountainous views around a lake you know what is the you know what are the buyers not the end buyers but like the people that live there and actually buy them what do they what is adding the value to them what is bringing the demand in um, of course, you will need to see if it needs any type of rezone that goes with variances, um, and here's a big one that um, <clears throat> you want to check with the city if there's any impact fees or fee in lieu of something. Like we were, um, we were in White House and we had a hundred something units, and you know we're going through our due diligence and the the. The seller never found out, never asked if there's any impact fees. Well, we found out there's you know a certain amount of impact fees per property. So if you've got 100 units and you're have $4,000 on impact fees, I mean that's a huge expense that you're going to have to factor into your project to see if that makes sense. Um, Here's a good one if the city provides any grants um for maybe affordable housing or section eight or any of that type of stuff and you may have to that may not be part of your end buyer's business plan but you know you you should know that and maybe you could you know have a value add for a certain type of buyer that maybe does stuff like that that's approved to do stuff like that Um, and then you're also going to add all your permitting fees like all your water tap fees your permit fees and you know, all the fees that go along with, you know, the price of the dirt, all this is price of the dirt at the end of the day. You know, if your value is 100 a pad, all of this has to fit in somewhere in that 100 a pad where you can actually make a profit. You know, maybe you want to be in for 60 a pad and you're selling this for 40 a pad, you know, for a profit. I mean, you don't want to break even. And then it just goes back to, you know, how much is an acre worth? You know, it just depends on what the challenges are. I'm going to go see if there's any questions on any of this stuff right here chat. I'm not seeing any questions. Anybody want to throw in a question about this stuff real quick? I'll go back if there's any. Let me see. What's... Okay, so, okay, so your due diligence materials, um, your survey, you know, you want to get your boundary, your alta. You also want to make sure you get your topo. Now, if you drive through two-bill lot and you see it's completely flat, do you need a topo? No, I would say not. You know, use your judgment, but a lot of times you're going to need a topo and, you know, determining looking at the topo um, will kind of determine, you know, do I need to do a critical lot plan for slopes? If it's over, I think it's 60 or 70%, I forget, you know, and if that's the case, then you have to get an engineer to draw up your critical lot plan. Maybe may have to move your setbacks and, you know, they'll test for virgin soil to make sure like I had one tore down the house and under the house was literally another old house. Like we pulled out TVs and, and wood and concrete and stuff like that. So I was like, oh my God, this is, we had to go back and have that, have the site tested to pull all that out to see like, if we had enough virgin soil to continue with the build. So, you know, you know, if you're doing, we had another one where they, this property was a dumping site for years and these concrete companies were just dumping their trucks For years on this plat and then it was like a you know we had to get a bid it was like 250 grand to just clean up the concrete and get it all for dumpsters and load them out of there so it's like you you know you got to really look um traffic study for um if you're doing any type of larger density they're going to make you do a traffic study to determine um turning lanes traffic lights and stuff like that um your site plan you know after you have a survey you're going to build your site plan within Whatever requirements in there, um, I'm gonna go at infrastructure bids. We just talked about that. Uh, your soil test, we kind of uh, poked on that with the rock, and you know, making sure that you know you can actually build wherever you want to. Uh, phase a phase one and a phase two. A phase one is kind of like you know a generalization of the land. It, it could have anything about the marketing, any findings, any old stuff. It's basically like a report of what you have now. A phase two is when you go in and actually do the tests, like pay for the actual tests. So some people you'll want, you may wanna have a phase one done first to be able to show the end buyers and then the phase two can be whatever their concerns are. Like there's some things where you're just not gonna get, you know, because it doesn't matter what we think, it matters what they think. So if you're gonna spend money, um, you're gonna wanna make sure that your phase two is whoever the other requirements are gonna be. We already talked about stream determination. Perk test is, you know, for if you're not going to have city water, if they're all going to have little septic tanks. And then back to title work, which you want to make sure that you get the abstract and look through there and make sure that you're seeing um, if there's anything, any deed restrictions or old plats or easements or stuff that you can't just see with the information you have. Yo, Andrew. Answer my question. Done. You got it, bro. I'm going to peek at some questions. I've got two. One, what would be a high, low estimate of due diligence cost for a typical tool build in Donaldson? Nothing crazy. No, I mean, it shouldn't be like, well, your survey, right? I mean, you have to look at, is there a lot of trees on there? You're going to have to see how much, what it takes to get the trees ripped down. You know, um, is your parking requirements, like what does that look like? Is there an alley? You know, is it front back loaded with the grudges? Um, but I mean, basically, I mean, you should really just need to be able to just, look for the survey, figure out like, does it have an old tap from an old house? You know, um, or you have to get a new water tap, stuff like that. Um, how deep would you say most people get before they decide to cut bait on those sunken costs? and Do what, how, I don't really quite understand that. So like, uh, let's, oh, sorry, is it okay, no, pop in. Um, So let's say it's someone and let's say it's not like a two build, it's like, five acres and it's kind of far out. There's not, there's a lot more to it. How deep would you say most people get before they're like, "Ah, it's not worth it. Like, is that like six months in or is that like, can they get a full year in? No, they're not. So basically you're going to, you should require them to do enough due diligence on the front end before you even go under contract. Now we'll have people pay for, um, we usually will not, have a number of units a lot of you'll get a lot of lois that i want to make sure it gets x units well i don't i don't agree to that so if you're going to have to pay your guy to make a site plan that's going to work and make sure whatever you want works first not after you know due diligence should mostly be confirming a lot of stuff that maybe we have already brought to the table on the front end or that they can't find themselves you know i'm not going to lock anybody up for a lot of time if they don't Do those things you know and find out where their money's coming from also that help it does thank you all right good on that okay so now we talk about the whole nother phase is your market research i mean a lot of us are probably agents so we kind of you run the comps cool um you're gonna run the comps you're gonna it's always good to know like a lot of times, you know, if I'm the seller, I'm not gonna provide comps a lot of times. Sometimes I will, but a lot of times I won't because I want them to do it. I wanna see what their take of the market is. You know, your your price per, your price sales price per square foot, your build price per square foot, your infrastructure costs and your dirt costs are your four major, you know, milestones where you're gonna need for your cost. right? Um, here's a big one. How many proposed units are either permitted or being developed similar to yours in the area? Um, if I'm building an STR product, am I am, am I 50 of you know 500 that are coming at the same time that are going to be done? You know what does that competition look like? And if so, what type of products are these people doing? You know what are their your their projected sales price? You're going to have to kind of figure out what everyone else is doing. It's not just about your project; it's about everything around you calling the people that just, you know, maybe looking for rezone applications to find out what other people are doing. You know, if that, if you can't find it there, find all the people that bought something and call them and see what they're doing. And if they want another one, you know, you have to figure out what, you know, what type of products is selling in the market and for how much you have to figure all of that out, you know, and what are the major players in the area and what are they paying per pad? What is the value per pad? You know, is it structured parking? is it not structure parking? You know, there's going to be a difference. Is it just raw dirt pad? You know, you have to kind of figure out the price per pad to kind of make a valuation of what you think you may be able to sell it for in consideration to what you have it for minus the cost plus the costs. And are there alternatives or multiple zonings at a parcel that could be added to the value or or not? Um, And that's huge. So, I mean, there's a lot of times you'll have um, a parcel that's right in the middle of a a policy, you know, here, I'm going to show you guys a great example of what I'm talking about here. Oh, this is perfect. Okay. So this one right here, for instance, we look at the property. I just lost it. Let me pull that back up. Bear with me a second. Here we go. All right. So if you take a look at this right here, here's the site, right? There's um two zonings on the bottom right here. Let me pull it up in GIS. And, well, it's not showing on here, but this is, a, this is MULA on the bottom and RM4 at the top, right? So what they wanted us to do is we did a regulatory SP. So you have an SP where you go through and you, know, you have to have your site plan, your, all your water treatment, stormwater, um, architecture, everything fully. A regulatory is basically given this, you know, it's like, hey, I want to do this, but I we don't really know what we're going to do. And it's based on a, a base zoning and the city's going to want requirements. So this is getting the city's requirements in there and just laying it out of like, see this little arrow right here, a pros, proposed improvements for public alley. They wanted an alley in between the commercial zoning and the residential zoning. So we had to allocate that. And then you can see over here, here's your two policies and that's where it shows the uh you can see right here is the line of where it breaks off so they wanted an alley so now we have this differentiated just like this here's kind of the final you've got your rm15 is what we put up here and we're doing an mula down here you've got your 20-foot alley and then you look right here it's like landscape buffer landscape buffer landscape buffer so if there's any green space or anything the city wants they're going to do it in this and here's basically. Your, your regulations around each one. So here's the bottom one. Here's your, it's your, op, it's allowed within the zoning with a, a 1% FAR, you know, um, 45 foot requirements. And then it's going to be the same thing here. So I'm going to go back to a table that you're going to need in your due diligence. And this is the Your land use requirements. So basically, this is going to lay out your setbacks, your street setbacks, Um, going through here, uh, zoning districts and land uses. So basically, this is your zoning. You know, this is the very basic. There's all the zonings. Um, Land use tables is the big one because you're going to be looking now. Okay, you're looking at this chart, right? So is it residential or commercial? You kind of have to determine that, you know? Residential, for instance, is like, you know, um, by square footage. I have an R8, it has to be 8,000 square feet to build too. ten R10, 10,000, so far. And commercial, is gonna, is, it's on floor area ratio, FAR. So you may have 1%, 2%. So that basically means like um, there's a percentage of the footprint that you can build whatever you want. You know, if you build houses, you have to stay within the FAR. If you're gonna put, bu- you could be one big, huge building. So you kind of have to look to see the different zonings and what they intend to use. Where's that arrow? Yeah. So like single family, for instance, two family, multifamily, RN2 through, you know, it's gonna be whatever this P means, permitted by right or permitted to subject specific condition. You know, do I have to call somebody and see what I have to do? Special special ex- exception, do I have to go through planning? You know, uh, and whatever these are permitted only within an overlay. So, you know, so it's like, cool, all right, permitted by right, you know, um, permitted by condition or whatever it is that you have to figure out, you know, this is where you're going to your surveying, your civil engineer, and you're kind of basing your your site plan. Uh, This one right here, the general provisions, district bulk tables, same thing, Um, minimum lot, here's your five acres for AR2 or AG, and then so forth. You'll see RS, 40,000, you know. Here's your setback requirements, uh, 20 feet. It looks like you can go up to three stories and have 20 feet on each side for a setback. And then you go down to RS and R10, you get the five foot setbacks, uh, the 0.4 FAR, 10,000 square foot, you know, um, and then so forth. Uh, And then, I mean, you can go through all of these all day, street setbacks, your overlays, see if it's on a collector street plan, And then, you know, every municipality has this and they're all different. So this is the Metro one. I'm going to check for questions. I don't see any. I'm moving on. All right, we're going to go back to here. Cool. So we talked about the market research due diligence. Let's see what else. Okay. Financing. So this is huge because it's, it depends on your strategies. You may have to be prepared for some of these but not execute them, but you're gonna to have to prepare somebody else to execute them. You know, so we got private money. Private money is pretty simple. It's like people that have funds that you pull together, you can maybe syndicate it, do a syndication where everybody comes in as LPs, you know, a general partner could kind of run the show and maybe they get paid a little bit more. Um, you can owner finance is like we talked about earlier is like the seller is going to hold a note for you for a while Either they hold a note or they JV with you. Um, or you can get a straight up commercial loan, a lot of times you're going to have to your end buyer will partly come to the table with a commercial loan. You know, sometimes they'll take down the dirt and they'll refi out after you, you want to make sure that you know who that lender is find out their requirements. And you're in full communication with these people throughout the time. It's not like residential where if I work with an agent, I just don't ever, the agent does all the communication. It's not like that in a commercial. I mean, you're, everybody's going to be at the table together. You're going to have conference calls with everybody. Your buyer may be talking to my seller and vice versa. That's okay. That's just the way it is because, you know, that agent is not the, can, there's no way that agent is a professional on all these things to be able to convey that information they're gonna to have to talk to the right person and it's gonna to have to go from the person to the person. It can't be an agent's interpretation of what they think they said, you know? So, you know, be prepared for that that's okay. Hedge funds is, you know, is a hedge fund. You know, we know it's pooled money together, maybe from insurance companies or people. Um, maybe it's institutionalized and so maybe it's not And a construction loan is a, is a construction loan. Um, partners and team members, this is, this is pretty good. We kind of touched on a lot of this. Um, You want to make sure you have a killer engineer, surveyor, your civil engineer. Your civil engineer is basically like your foundation down, your dirt, your sewer, anything underneath. Your engineer um, is most likely going to be the person who's putting the from going up from vertical up, all of your your plants put together. Um, Draftsman architect is definitely different than both of those. You know, those are they'll specialize in like your floor plan and making sure it fits the site. Um, and you're going to go back and forth. And that's a lot of it has to do with whoever the end buyer is. They're going to have their own draftsman architect. You know, you really just care about the square footage and the site plan and the footprint. Um, here's a, a good one, commercial broker. And this is huge too. And I just learned this. Um, for instance, I'm the owner of, uh, part owner of like, a, I think it was like 20 to 25 units. And I put it out there, you know, and I didn't get any, I have, I sent out to my people. But then I'm like, you know, I was like, if we're going to, once you get to that million up mark, the everything changes. All the requirements, the process, the people, it, it, it just does. So I'm like, you know what? I was like, I talked to a friend and he hired a commercial and he's very well-equipped agent himself. I'm like, why did, tell me, why did you actually hire, fire yourself and hire an agent? He's like, because they have the people and they have mold, like we have MLS. Cool. But they have multiple MLSs, like different syndications that, are separately paid for that go to different people in different countries and different states. So when you're a commercial broker, like they pull in these people, that's their job. Like I'm a, I have a buyer's list for great for rehabs and single lots and maybe anything up to 10, 15, 20 units. That's great. But they, their buyer's list is like usually all of the hedge funds and the big developers, the people that have already been qualified to call them So, you know, I fired myself and hired a commercial agent and they sold it for full price in a week, you know, and it's just because it's all, it's it's down to your network. I mean, I, you, we may, we can build that network too, but is that the highest, best use of my time? Maybe, maybe not, you know, so, you know, it just depends on, you know, if you want to get the highest and best use, you got to have the professionals. It's just like, you know, like an investor who tries to sell their own property. They're not going to get the same rois that they actually hire an agent whose sole job is to sell the property you know um here's uh, city officials council members city planners all your people at codes and utilities you're going to have to have good relationships or with somebody within your organization to be able to you know not have to wait in line for two weeks to get an, one question answered you know having relationships with these people is is everything it's, especially especially your due diligence process if one person has to wait for three months for a survey of another person has got a guy that can go do the field work tomorrow. I mean, they're a leg up. I mean, that's this the relationship. Very, it's all back to being relationship based, along with your your general and your subcontractors. You know, your plumber is huge, especially on infrastructure, getting the bids for all the utilities and stuff. Your plumber, you know, your electrician who's going to have to figure out like whatever type of underground they're going to have to do, you know, um, and all of the any of the civil underground contractors. Questions, I don't think I see any, nope. Moving, Um, okay, so do we, we, we've already been through an hour so I wanna respect everyone's time. I don't mind tapping into a few things. So I'm just gonna say to anybody, um, I'm gonna go ahead and get that prop stream link in the real quick for everyone. So this will get you a, a free trial and discounted monthly fee for PropStream chat. All right, cool. So there's your PropStream link if you guys want to jump on that. Hey, Gary, so have I was actually asking some people this earlier. Is PropStream what you found to be the best? use? I mean, we've tried I mean there's no best, you know, I mean, and it just depends on, I mean, I, I like PropStream stream for the data. I like prop stream to do mailings on prop stream is, is great. Um, here, let me, um, let me just go ahead and pull it up. It, it goes back to your skip tracing, you know, I have multiple I've used Sherpa in the past and other skip trace services that if you put their list up against it, you don't have to pay again. So a lot of, sometimes I'll get them in both of those and just combine them together, you know, and hopefully get some other numbers and then, you know, figure it out from there. But more or less, let me share the screen with this. So here's PropStream right here. Like more or less, like here's all of your marketing lists, and then they have automated lists, which I really like. So the automated list is like if I put a list together, um, it'll update in real time with property as properties buy and sell and the records change. So you know if you're going to change your list every ninety days, you're going to have to go with whatever system you use and do the whole thing again, you know, because people buy and sell. But this automatically does it; you just pull it. So that's huge. So all of these are my automated lists that, you know we frequently use. So if I ever wanna pull from this, I just, I'll just export it, pull it out and I'll be good. Um, This is when, you know, it'll break down all of your separate lists and all your contacts, all your email addresses and phone numbers. Um, It will do, you can do skip tracing 10 cents each, which is decent. And you know, once you use it, like I said, you're, if you keep doing the same list, you not. You only have to pay for the new ones. So maybe you pay 150 bucks for a list the first time, but maybe you pay two or three, $4 the next time around. Um, you can also, I wanna say, let's see what we have. They just, they changed this. It looks like it's not, let's just do this real quick. Well, so I do know without digging through to find it now that you can take these campaigns and do a direct mail if you want to. You know, you can design your own postcard. Um, You can do all of that stuff through here, and pay for postage. I I forget how much it is. I don't do it through here, but you can, and it works really well. Um, You can do ringless voicemails. I don't know why it's not showing me everything it looks totally different than I've ever seen it. Even yesterday I was looking. What's that? I have no idea, man. (laughs) I don't get involved in that. You know, I just make sure that I'm not really traceable. And then, okay, so you can do email blasts and stuff like that. I don't know why, you can set up websites and landing pages for your campaigns. Like if you wanna sponsor an ad to your list, you know, you could, you know, hit them in all different directions. So that's the scoop on PropStream. Any questions on that? Let me look, I don't see more chat. No questions. Cool. So back to marketing. I mean, we. I think all of us kind of know how to market. None of us, you know. But you're going to want to back to having the right data. Um, you're going to have to have a decent script, and who's going to call that script? How many people? It's, I mean, it's a business, you know. Who's going to call these people? How are you going to reach them? How much money you can spend a month um, figuring out, you know, your target market. Uh, negotiating goes back to kind of what we talked about earlier with, you know, timelines and stuff like that. Um, your, your earnest deposits and everything. Um, how would it fit? I think we already kind of went over a lot of this stuff. How to fit contract deadlines to line up with the municipalities and the deposits. You know, I think we've, we've touched on a lot of that already. So that that's good, um, marketing for the end buyer. I think we touched on a lot of this already, you know, um, bank underwriting criteria for whatever this, you know, somebody's gonna spend, you know, $4 million on the dirt and then, you know, 50 to hundred million on the construction. Like where are they, are those requirements to be able to take all this down and be able to do it, you know, um. And here's a good one, is there some type of dwelling that could give income or serve with a conventional loan as you hold or develop? Now, you know, for instance, you have a lot and maybe it's, you know, the house is worth 200, but you're paying 800 for it because you could add X amount of houses. So sometimes what we'll do is we'll get like a normal conventional loan or some type of financing on the house, you know, based off the rent, Based off the value, you know, obviously we're not going to get $800,000 a $200,000 house, but maybe we get something, you know, to be able to hold money and pull money together. So it has to make sense. But is there, or like, is this a huge parcel and there's already a commercial strip that's making money that needs to be torn down? Is there something on there that could help you get some financing on the front end or give you a little bit of income to be able to hold it? Um, and then we talked about this your build price and exit price per square foot and then quali- qualifying and confirming the buying power you know it's just like you know pre-approving your buyer you've got to talk to these lenders um, and figure out if they're if the lenders are legit you know you want to do your due diligence on these companies that are coming to you like you know um, a lot of times they'll come to you with a presentation about you know Ryan Holmes that came over it's like here's How we buy? Here's where we bought. Here's how we do it. Here's how many we've sold. How many long we've been in business? Like you're gonna want to make sure that, you know, are you gonna want to lock up a five million dollar acquisition on the first time somebody's, you know, wants to do 80 units? Probably not, you know, unless maybe their earnest money is 300 grand instead of 100. You know, and is that your only? Is that your only hope? Is that one person? Then you may need to redirect like your, your model. You know, but like it all goes, you want a first time home buyer, you want the investor all cash. You know, you got to really make sure that they can come up with the funds because at the end of the day, they don't come up with their, and you still have to close. You know, so if I have to still be lined up to close this deal, assuming somebody doesn't come through. But I want to mitigate that as much as I can, you know, by not, by really over qualifying these end buyers. And we'll have, you know, uh, if there's a lender that they're using, we'll, we'll have it in the contract that if they're going to change any type of lending criteria, we have to approve it. We have to approve assignability. You want them to have assignability, but you want to a- approve it. You know, if they're bringing in an end buyer, a lot of times they'll just change the entity, which is cool. But if they're changing it to somebody else who's doing different funding, you have to go back and re-qualify that and make it provable. You know, no, it's just, you know, you can't just do whatever you want when you're talking about, to $5, 10000000 million acquisition, you just can't do that, you know, and and you have to make sure that you're in touch with their attorneys, and they understand what's going on, you know, because they don't always communicate with the people that are in the field trying to get the deals. So your LOI due diligence could take a month. And you have to take that consideration to your timelines, you know, who's the most prepared, you know, and when you're telling them, hey, is going through the LOI process, is it a pain in the ass? Are they just like hard to get a hold of? And they... They say they'll have it to you by Monday and by Thursday, so they don't have it, you know? I mean, are these people that you wanna work with, you know? Uh, talk to maybe other people that have done deals with them, you know, um, and just really, I mean, that's part of your, as an acquisition person, you're gonna have to deal with that. You're gonna have to dig and f- ask all the hard questions to get, to, you know, is this deal worth it or not? You know, to, is it worth working with these people? So guys, um, I, I have this recorded, so I can, I'm gonna send it out to everyone. I want to see if there's any last questions before we wrap it up here. Let me see. A chat. There's a chat. Chat. Guys, I'm not seeing any questions. So I hope that do we? I hope that we learned something at least. You know, this is very basic. You know, there's a lot to unpack when you actually have a property. Um, And you're, you want to be really careful because I mean, I've seen people buy stuff without knowing there's a a pipe underneath it. I've seen people buy stuff, not knowing of like a deed restriction. You know, I mean, I've seen a lot of it. So you, you know, you want to make sure that, you know, if you're going to do some of this, so you can do the basic stuff. You can, anybody can go on GIS. Anybody could look at an old survey or call the title company, you know, um, anybody could know the basic stuff. So it's like, um, you, you just got, that's the stuff that I'm kind of pressing on to everybody here is just the basic stuff. And if you want to dig into it more, you know, I'll send out the slides so you can kind of have like a list. Like if you're going to do a project, at least you have a list of, you know, stuff to do, depending on how big it is. And it's not everything on the list, but it's just some stuff. And I'll send this out too if anybody wants to relook at this. Um, I see one final question. It looks like I got two questions. I'll be quick. What does work best? Direct mail, calling, emailing. You have to do all of it. And you have to have VAs and you have to do it yourself. You have to do all of it and you have to have multiple people going after them. you one person doing acquisition never really works. You know, we usually lean, we usually have someone on the team that we lean against if we need an answer, or somebody's not answering a call or back and forth. So you're gonna, you know, you have to build your team. Um, and that's what it is, Larry. I mean, it's, it's all of everything. This is a appreciating, very weird market. I tell everybody, anything you learn before March 2020 means nothing. So, I mean, what works best then? I mean, every month it changes. I'll get awesome responses on text one month and then I'll get nothing on the next month. You know, so, I mean, it's it's depends on phone carriers and your message and everything. There's so many little things and that's why you just have to, hit people a lot and really be good at your list and like know the people that you've talked to, know the people you haven't. And then, you know, there's always a gap of a list where people are just, you can't find them. So those are the people you need to reach out to and find, go to their house and door knock, um, send them mailers, or maybe use a different skip trace service to try to find their numbers. You know, maybe there's an estate you could find, but you know, knowing your list is, is key, you know, and you're going to talk to people. It's a, there's deals that we've got under contract that we've been working on for one, two, three, four years. It's normal. You know, you have to be willing The follow up is intense. You're gonna, you know, they're gonna go under contract with other people. You're gonna ask them, oh man, you know, why did your due diligence up on that? When are they supposed to close? Did it, and then you're gonna follow up. Did it actually close? Oh, no, it didn't. Oh, cool, well, who's it with? Is it with a wholesaler? Ask them, is it with a wholesaler? They don't know the difference. Oh, okay, well, that's even better, you know, because they probably have it with a wholesaler that just gave them a high price. So you're following up throughout previous contracts and previous listings, and you're maybe calling agents that had it listed. You know, maybe, maybe you can't get a hold of the agent or the, the person, but maybe an agent 10 years ago, you find that had an old listing from a family member and you call them and maybe they can work a deal. You know, it's just like how much work or how much work are you willing to put into it? You know, it's, you know if you're just gonna text or call a couple times, it's never gonna happen. You know, it's it's persistence and following up with these people for years. You know, I mean, you're not going to get you know multi-million dollar deals by just a couple phone. I mean, I'm not saying it hasn't happened, but like it doesn't happen often. You know, your follow up is is absolutely the monotonous follow up and calling, saying the same thing. We have people call. I'll have somebody call just as a new person, just like what is this person telling you? You know. That, you know, talking to the other people in the state, trying to find all the people in the state's phone numbers and trying to get a real story of what they're not telling you. I mean, it's just part of real estate, you know, it's just that you're not working, you're not trying to get a job of listing or buying agent, being a buyer's agent, you know, you're going after it to actually be the one to finally be the person that they trust enough to make a deal with, you know, and it's completely different than trying to go after listings and stuff like that. So well, guys, I appreciate it. I'm going to roll. It's it's 4.15. Um, I go ahead and sign up to stream. If you have any questions, let me know. Um, if you have any questions outside of this, um, you're going to have to reach out to me and maybe we'll get together or, or talk by phone or do stuff. But I appreciate everyone coming on here, your time. I'm going to take a quick screen and we'll talk to you, everyone, soon. Look out for the emails. We'll talk to everyone. See you. I'm leaving. And meeting.